Welcome to the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. I'm Marcus Goldman. And I'm Ray Coob. And it's my birthday. Happy birthday. And we're releasing this on May 3rd, which is also the birthday of James Brown, the godfather of soul. And the grandmaster of funk as well. Mr. Dynamite, soul brother number one. He had more nicknames. They came up with new ones all the time. He was amazing. He was a tour de force, an energy field that just propelled itself perpetually through the universe. He was the funk personified, James Brown. So now, listen, gentlemen, it is start time. Are you ready for start time? Thank you, and thank you very kindly. It is indeed a great place to present to you at this particular time, national and international known as the hardest working man in show business, man that's saying, I'll go crazy. Try me. You've got the power. Think. If you want me, I don't mind. Bewildered. Million dollar seller lost someone. The very latest release, Night Train. Let's everybody shout and shimmy. Mr. Dynamite, the amazing Mr. Please Please himself, the star of the show, James Brown and the famous flag. Legendary moment for JB, right? A very legendary moment for it. He financed that album himself. I saw that and I thought, wow, the DIY guys of the 21st century really should plug into this more. And a lot of the source for our point of view on this is the movie that we both watched with Chadwick Boseman as James Brown. Get on up is hysterical it's informative it's heartbreaking it's a really great film and it's a telling of the story of the one and only james brown i really enjoyed the movie as well and we will be referring to it throughout the conversation as well as the book the godfather of soul which is the james brown autobiography i got to pick through it while we were getting prepared and i found at this small little bookstore right near my house 50 years of writing about the godfather of soul nelson george and alan leeds they found a bunch of great articles about james brown in his early days it was interesting to read some of the perspectives so I am really excited to talk about all of this with you today, Ray. I hope you're feeling funky on your birthday. Get on up! <laughs> Sex machine. Well, it was in Barnwell, South Carolina, even though JB was more closely identified with his life in Georgia, which is where he spent a good portion of his life and lived there and died there at age 73 in 2006. But at the beginning, 25 years before I was born to the day, James Brown was born into abject poverty in the most rural southern kind of way. It was Jim Crow poor as well because it was still Jim Crow America and the African-American community felt it in every way. His mom was 16 when he was born. His dad, 21. And the telling of it in the movie is some of the worst that you could expect to experience as a child at any time excessive drinking violence threats of violence and ultimately his mama leaves 
And eventually he leaves too, right? Yeah. he can't take his father anymore. Yep. It made him tough. And as we talk about James Brown throughout this episode, you're going to find out he is one tough, one strong, and one intense human being. Don't forget crazy. Um, crazy as well. Definitely crazy. But again, the troubled childhood, the traumatic childhood comes into big play here and... It will explain or help maybe understand why James Brown was who he was. Very complex man. Part of it is tied to his mother. And we talked about this before we started recording. Uh, She leaves because she can't handle what's happening there. Young man. And he moves on with life, ends up uh, moving forward living with ants, I believe. And while he's living with them, sees his mother in the streets and she denies that she knows him. And you can tell anything like that would crush a kid, but you can tell it's really portrayed. Well, the guy who played uh, James as a child did a great job. The kid was awesome. Yeah. His facial you can tell it crushes him to the, to the core. And uh, that whole thing wraps up. Karmically, I guess you'd say, in the movie, they portray it as she comes to see him backstage. I can't remember where, but he basically wants to know why she's coming to him now. I mean, now he's he's overcome all the obstacles that early life and life being a black man in the South in those days could put in your way to become one of the most powerful figures in the entertainment industry. Why are you coming to me now? It's a very poignant scene in the movie, mm-hmm. and I didn't know some of the things that you learned uh, about that meeting. After that show, when they met, she was toothless, and the first thing mm. he said to her in his autobiography is, I'm going to get you some new teeth. I could tell that it was portrayed in a way that shows it was hard for him to do that, and I believe that, because as, as wild as he could be, he was also a good man, a, a basic at the core of a good person. And had to overcome all of what she put in his way. I don't know if you want to call it Christian values, whatever you want to call it, but it just was the way he felt that he had to handle it. And I can't imagine anyone being cold or callous towards their mother. That scene in the movie where his mom completely ignores him mm-hmm. and doesn't even acknowledge his existence was heartbreaking. And you're right, I would be crushed as a kid too. He survived. I don't know. What would have happened to me? And I'm oh, so heartbreaking to, to even think of. Yeah, it really is. And well, James does go down the road. The road leads him in a lot of places. And um, I like the way that they portrayed a lot of it in the movie. But, you know, Hollywood still does their thing. But one thing you can't you can't change. There's a couple things you can't change. And that is the fact that um James Brown was inspired to become an entertainer after he heard Louis Jordan do Caldonia, which is a song that works its way into the movie, right? It does. Walking with my baby, she got great big feet. She's long, lean, and lanky, and ain't had nothing to eat. But she's my baby, and I love her just the same. Crazy about that woman, cause Caldonia is her name. Before he's even signed to a record deal, uh, Little Richard's playing in Macon, I think, there at the Roadhouse, and they take a break to go outside. And seeing the opportunity, James and the Flames, uh, the Fabulous Flames as they were called then, right, jumped up on stage, and that's the song they did was Caldonia. Mm-hmm. 
There's little Richard out back having a smoke on. What the fuck is going on in there? (laughs) And that's how they got to know each other and became friends. And and little Richard became an an advisor uh, in some ways to uh, James Brown, even though Richard himself was just starting to find his way. Yeah. And it's interesting when you see how this relationship built. It shows in a weird way how some of these random meetings and random occurrences have sort of paved the way for the history of rock and roll to take its course. God, that sounds so philosophical. The fates, man. It's just like how James met Bobby Bird. They were in a detention center of all places, and they were playing against each other in a baseball game. And then uh, James saw them performing in the detention center, and in the movie, he got into a fight with the kid while they were watching Bobby Bird and his band play, and Uh then they were all at the nurse's office, and they started singing together, and that's how they really, I think, bonded after they had originally met. One, two, three, four... According to the movie, I didn't get that far into uh, James Brown's biography to read the part about him and Bobby Bird, but that relationship is a very important relationship because James Brown, I think, really needed Bobby Bird to get to where he was. He was fundamental in helping James Brown get to where he was. I never knew the full story about Bobby. I knew him as primarily the guy who would throw the cape on and would be, serve as the MC while James was working his moves, right? I didn't know the whole thing. I didn't know the closeness of their relationship. In some ways, if you think about it, Mr. Bird and Mr. Brown were the two closest people to each other in their lives. And they even died a year apart. I know. Their story is a story within the story because they start working together and getting to know each other when because they were bad boys, and then they start singing gospel together. And when they get around to doing the, the famous flames and having that moment with little Richard, they're on their way to something. But I don't even think they were sure just yet because it was still coming together, but the funk had not yet been formed. And as as Chaz, Chadwick Boseman pointed out as JB at one of the press conferences, it's all about the funk. And it's never ending. It's one long, funky groove. Yep. And that's why we're here talking about it on the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll. Ray, think about this. James Brown, the godfather of soul, the grandmaster of funk, yep. was born, stillborn. Wow. I didn't know that. Yeah, he was born stillborn. His great aunt would not give up on him and kept working, like rubbing his chest, rubbing his back, Uh breathing into him. And finally, he let out a big guttural cry and came to life. And Did he say, I feel good? (laughs) I don't know. But then... When he was living with his aunt, he was being bathed and 
his aunt was looking at the direction of the hairs on his arms sort of in that mystic way. And she looked at him as a little kid and said, you're going to be rich and famous one day. You're going to be rich and famous. What? And he that would scare the shit out of me. If I'm a little kid in a tub and my crazy aunt's telling me stuff like that, it would scare the hell out of me. <laughs> Not only that, I mean, he was poor. And when you're as poor as they are, I'm sure somebody telling you you're going to be rich someday was just like, yeah, right, whatever. Yeah, you're probably right. You know, the Jim Crow South plays a big role in James Brown's development. He ended up in prison six years for stealing a suit out of a car. And, you know, if he was white, it would have probably been a slap on the wrist in the Jim Crow South. Well, you know, these guys were young, dumb, full of talent. They could sing, and they had ideas. That's the thing I think I got early on as I began researching more and more about James Brown. They had ideas, and they weren't afraid of sharing. They weren't afraid of taking this from uh, this little bit from the Orioles and this little bit from Hank Ballard and this little bit from Church and putting it all together and creating their own sound. And it led to the funk. I mean, when you listen to his debut single, please, please, please. Please. Motherfucker ripped the roof off the house. There was nothing like that. Went to number six on the U.S. R&B chart. And it was all about the singles back then, right? Yeah, it was. The 45, the 45, the 45. The 45 was king. The record people would just bring the 45s to the radio stations, hand them to the DJs, and the DJs would listen to them and play it or be like, okay, I just... Got this new James Brown 45 handed to me. What do you think? And they would throw it on. Well, the 45 was king, and a lot of the early uh, James Brown records came out on King Records. He started, though, on Federal Records, also recording for Smash Records, and for his own record label, because at one point, he was one of the artists who took control of everything and said, fuck it, I'm going to do it myself. There's something else going on, and Please, Please, Please is the kind of song that just would grab ears and make people want to listen and he was very hit and miss through a lot of the 50s for every time he'd have a number one like try me there'd be songs that didn't even chart and so i don't know i guess that's why he kind of moved from label to label a little bit but i'm looking at the how the record started to get more traction as he gets to you know 1960 and 61 and 62 and the, then he's regularly on the charts both the r&b and on the U.S. pop charts. That's the thing that starts to happen as he continues to grow and dominate on the R&B charts. He's making very serious inroads into the crossing over of his music. Bootsy Collins played bass for him in the early funk days before going off to Parliament Funkadelic. I'm listening to this really great cross-section playlist of James Brown stuff, and I keep hearing Bootsy, his playing and his voice uh, on tracks, and it reminded me that he was part of that whole gang early on. And somebody else who was key in that was Maceo Parker in the early days. They were always touring, and Maceo had that amazing saxophone sound that really made it 
uh, a trademark thing. And while most bands or artists might fold the tent when they lose a talent like that in a key position when the band leaves him at one point, he regenerates. He puts all his energy into building his next band and his next thing and finding the other players that would be part of the next phase as the funk goes on. And it goes from being the Famous Flames to being James Brown in the Famous Flames and then later just James Brown, ladies and gentlemen. The evolution of his soul sound into the funk groove happened slowly from the 50s until the late 60s. Some of the things that I learned along the way include the fact that he added the rhythmic grunts, the expressive shrieks, the ring shouts, the work songs, the field cries. All of that was influenced not only by some of the church, but by what he had learned from real people, his real community, the real African-Americans. And he really wanted the people's soul to be in his music in every single way. He was deep, deep, deep like that. Well, after that initial burst into the 60s, you know, he became more of a chart issue for the U.S. pop charts than the R&B charts. Some of it was the material he was choosing. Some of it was how his audience was developing. And it really wasn't until he got on to Smash that he started to get hits again on the R&B charts. Starting to get people's attention with, like, Try Me is a good uh, version, backed with Papa's Got a Brand New Bag. How can you not move when Papa's Got a Brand New Bag comes on? And that would become a number one hit on the R&B chart, would cross over to all kinds of countries, make it to number eight on the pop charts. So you're talking about a few years there where he was more of a mainstream pop artist and then worked his way around to the funk. This is when you start to see the funk, the B-side, right? One of my favorites and one of the most emotional songs out of 1966's It's a Man's 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 World, Uh. number one on R&B. So much soul uh, hit number eight on the pop chart. So you see, he's crossed over. He's no longer hoping for it. He's in the middle of it. He's doing what he should be doing, which is taking care of business on the R&B charts because, hey, he's James Brown, and it's it's absolutely maximum R&B in the truest sense of the word. But he's crossed over to all kinds of people across our country and starts to become a big pop sensation as well. And that's where his legacy starts to get all tied up nice. And he starts to develop that godfather of soul, soul brother number one. The imagery starts to come into play. The mythological creature that is James Brown. One, two, James Brown influenced Wilson Pickett, Otis Redding, Sam and Dave with their styles. And you hear it more in the Southern um, soul music versus the Northern soul music because they were fully under the uh, Barry Gordy and the Motown wing. So it was totally a different sound, whereas the Southern sound, you hear that rawness and that pain and that, you know, the Jim Crow, the slavery, all of the post-slavery, the struggles, you hear it and feel it in that soul so much more, I think, than you do in some of the Motown soul. One of the things I noticed, Marcus, is that when James would start to have a slowdown of hits, suddenly, maybe miraculously, <laughs> but I think it was by planning, 
the hot track would land and it would take him back to the top of the charts like cold sweat number one r&b number seven pop chart what a hot number That's where they say uh, funk got its name, the first funk tune, so to speak. He had a way of talking that could befuddle the truly white people, but was lyrical and magical to most people. He was explaining it, and if you took a second to step back from your normal way of listening, you could understand fully what James was talking about in regards to what he was doing. There's a filter that people listen through. And when you take that filter away, you're halfway to the funk, Marcus. You're halfway to the funk. Because, you know, the feeling is what happens when you hear the music. There's really no other way to explain it to people if you don't know what the funk is. But if you got that filter up, man, you may never quite get it. I know, Marcus, you're saying, oh, how long is he going to go on and on and on about the funk? Well, the funk never ends, Marcus, the funk. James told us this, the funk never ends. He said that many times. Yes, he did. And he said it in song many times. <laughs> and just about the time, he was still dominating, but just about the time you thought maybe he's going to run out of steam, it's time to get up because I feel like a sex machine. And he followed that with super bad. And then he got political with songs like Get Up, Get Into It, Get Involved, right? Yeah. He started to talk about the politics, the, the neo-politics of the time, what was going on. The same stuff kind of that Marvin was talking about. Yep, he got he got very political as well. And uh, what was uh, Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud is another one. And I think that's a song that made white people feel very, very uncomfortable. Uh, are they planning an uprising because they're singing this song? Oh. Oh, my. Well, the answer to that usually came in song as well. Like the next big hit, number one on the R&B chart, number 15 on the pop chart. Hot pants. So political. Hot pants. <laughs> Followed by make it funky. Oh, man, I just but, love the music of James but, Brown. I listen to it all the time. But, I mean, think about it. He used his funk in a very good way in the world of politics. After Martin Luther King was shot, he did his show on TV so as to keep uh, the African-American community away from the police and so that there was no rioting or, you know, anything like that in Boston. And he... He figured that if he could keep the march in TV, that it could uh, keep the, the powder keg that was ready to explode from exploding. Yes. I remember that. And yeah. he didn't want that to explode. Nope. He didn't want that conflict. He didn't want to see so much violence at all. I mean, he grew up with all that violence. He wanted people mm-hmm. to get funky together. And if people could get funky together, maybe they could get along. There you go. Thinking again, Marcus. <laughs> well, ouch. <laughs> and the funk goes on. You know, the funk goes on. And the hits continue to come for James Brown. He kept going pretty well into the 70s with hits that you know kept him on the chart and got him close to the top of the chart. A song called The Payback that I don't really know that well. Or Stone to the Bone, Sexy, Sexy, Sexy. Has mm-hmm. this happened to you where you're thinking, I don't really know that song. And you go and you listen to it and you go, oh, I know that song. Yep. 
That's what happens to me all the time with James Brown. Oh, absolutely. He's in a lot of movie soundtracks. He's done a lot of movie soundtracks. He's made a lot of cameos in movies. So he's stayed relevant, and he always plays James Brown when he's in the movies, which is great. Yeah, Blues Brothers, right? Yep, the Blues Brothers. His scene, his scene and Aretha's scene might have been the two best scenes in the entire movie, without a doubt. Absolutely. Other than the story fun, you know, in the chase through the mall. But, you know, when it comes down to the cameos, yeah, man. Those cameos were phenomenal. You know, I was even listening to a little bit of The Roots this last couple of weeks, and I could hear I could hear James Brown's influence in their sound as well. A harder funk from them and a raw Philly funk, but you could hear the James Brown in their sound. In the spirit of Led Zeppelin on Houses of the Holy, no, take it to the bridge! Where's that confounded bridge? More about the great James Brown after we head to Crooked Eye and take it to the bridge. On the balance history of rock and roll. What's that confounded bridge? Nothing quite quenches that thirst like a pint of crooked eye. Am I right, Marcus, or am I right? I would have to say the latter. <laughs> you are correct. <laughs> yes, or right. Left, right, correct is all good. And that's because when you go in the crooked eye and you look at the board, you're always going to find something that makes you feel right. Right there in the heart of Hapro at York Road in Montgomery. Go see the gang at Crooked Eye. It's all good, and it's all happening at Crooked Eye Brewery in the heart of Hapro. The fact that Crooked Eye has survived the pandemic and done a great job staying open and taking all of the necessary precautions to keep everybody safe is a wonderful thing. And I think it's a testament to not only their business, but who they are as people. Well, we raise our pints to you, and now they're pouring at Jamie's House of Music in Lansdowne. That's not too far from you in Delaware County, right? That is true. It's right down the street, literally about two and a half, three miles from my pad. So live music and Crooked Eye near me, too. Jamie's House of Music does great work with live music, and they never had somebody there pouring, and now the Crooked Eye crew is there. Bring in all those delicious brews from Hapro. So Delaware County, come and check out Crooked Eye and the great tunes at Jamie's House of Music. All the details about all this on CrookedEyeBrewery.com, their website, and follow them on Facebook, too. Whenever you need a tasty pint, remember, Crooked Eye Brewery, right in the heart of Hatboro. Pantheon Podcast listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. 
I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. James Brown was rewarded and punished by America his entire life. One of the incredible things about James Brown is for how many times he was beaten down and kicked down and knocked to the ground, he dusted himself off and got right back up and walked with even more force every time. And, and that makes me think of his shows where he would, you know, drop to his knees of exhaustion, right? Bobby Bird would bring out the cape and, you know, like they were going to leave and, and he throws off the cape. He would throw, he would stand up and get re-energized. Then he'd go and do another 10, 15 minutes of the funk, mm-hmm. do another song or two. And he would sometimes do that thing with the cape multiple times because it was so much fun to see if he was really going to leave this time, you know? Yeah. But he always found a way to overcome it. Maybe it was the power of the funk. Mm-hmm. And many people in white pop culture dismissed him as sort of a cover-up for lack of talent. They called him like rhinestones on an empty suit. He was all flash and no substance, which couldn't have been further from the truth. It just Those are sh- people who don't recognize what JB did as far as running his business, taking care of his own business and his people his way. Oh, they yeah. didn't understand that part. They just see the, the performance, and they obviously are extremely white and can't quite conceive the funk. So my attitude towards those folks is, kiss my lily white ass. JB rules. <laughs> I had to say it in a way they would understand. No. <clears throat> <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah, it made me I laugh and cough at the same there. time. But <laughs> but like even like photographer Diane Arbus said, I love freaks when referring to James Brown at a photo shoot. And James wasn't a freak. James was about his otherness. Normal people seem to get excited by watching those who are different uh, from the mainstream masses and tend to label people like that as freaks or uh, weirdos or something along those lines because they're not like they don't fall in line like everybody else here we are in the mid 70s james brown you know successful america's going through a lot of changes it's music's going through a lot of changes music's going through a lot of changes and he's changing with it you know what happens he goes from being uh, a mainstream crossover pop success to going back to being more of a success on the R&B chart and in the R&B corners as he moves into the mid and late 70s. It seems that the uh, label worked very hard to keep him as relevant as possible on the pop charts, too, because they did everything they could to keep him out there, even though 
he still continued to do it his own way and was like, hey, if these people want to come along for the ride, great. If not, great. That's right. That's the attitude that he had. That's the truth. And you know what? Part of it is is that these are labels that were born of the previous generation. And here in the mid-'70s, things have changed for sure. There's definitely been a change in the way music is made and marketed. And sometimes the machine that James worked with didn't keep up. However, in the 80s, He landed with a group of upstarts called Scotty Brothers Records, and they did a bunch of stuff. And one of the things they did was bring the Godfather back. You remember Living in America from the Rocky movie? I do. I do. I remember the Rocky movies very well. They were an important part of my childhood and teen years. Well, that got him back on the charts, both the charts. All the charts loved that song, and that was James Brown personified in the 80s in a lot of ways. And he'd do other stuff. He'd uh, do a Sex Machine 86, and that didn't really do so much. He would just keep working at it because that's what he did. He was a showman who liked to keep, just keep making music and growing and going forward as much as he could. And uh, that's kind of where his hits, I mean, he has other records and he has other records that did pretty well, like I'm Real or Static Mm. in 1988 and other things, but he really stopped becoming a major star in in the sense of the crossover on the charts, but continued to be one of the biggest draws in uh, in concerts and on the road, both here and internationally. He started playing Europe more in his later years, Europe and Asia, because he was having so much more success and playing to such large, large crowds overseas at that time. Oh, by the way, in the 80s, somebody we've mentioned quite a few times in other podcasts tried to record an album with uh, James Brown. Chris Blackwell brought him to the islands to work with Sly and Robbie, and they recorded some stuff, but they soon parted ways because they couldn't work together due to creative differences. But Mm -hmm. I would love to hear what they were working on. I would love to hear those tapes. Yeah, he did a lot of different things musically in and in the 80s, as we discussed uh, earlier and just there, he was challenged. He tried stuff like working with Africa Bombada on a song called Unity, which infused some rap and hip hop elements into his music. He tried to stay current. And he tried to stay relevant as things were changing yet again. I mean, he'd been through... Half a dozen or more changes, both in R&B and inside funk music, you know, all while defining the funk. Defining the funk. He was so far ahead of his time. He kept the funk moving and you either followed along and were on for the ride or you got left behind somewhere. You know, you made a good point earlier, Marcus, about how America kind of sat on James Brown, really pushed him down. But, you know, things got really weird later in his life and it's depicted as one of the central themes in the movie get on up 
that opening scene where they show him rolling a joint with PCP and smoking it and then losing his shit and driving his truck in and shooting his shotgun off inside a, a building that he owns. He had a business there. and Oh, yeah, you, you got to take a shit. Now imagine unhitching your pants. As you open the door to your master bathroom, you see me, James Brown, just sitting there taking a break. Now I'm a busy man. And I'm guessing you cats are too. But a person of convenience has been abused here. Which one of you dinner folk hung a number two in my commode? What's it you, sir? What's it you? Don't shoot. I ain't gonna shoot nobody, son. It was you, wasn't it? You took a break in my bathroom, didn't you? Oh, nah, 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 nah. It's gonna be okay. It's gonna be okay. What's your name? Charlie Buell. Charlie Buell. Get on up. Just misbehaving, and then there's a police chase, and it leads to jail time? Yeah. Jail time. Wow. And I remember when that stuff was going on, and we all remember hearing the stories about domestic abuse with his wife, and these are not things that make you comfortable as a person if you have a soul. And I never understood, and I still to this day cannot understand, um, I've tried, how you go that far out of your fucking mind. What I understood was, and have understood more and more as we do this podcast, bro, and that is why artists sometimes are fucked up because of what they went through when they were kids. And we all have our challenges in life. We sure do. But some of the stuff that artists go through leads to incredible art and pain often simultaneously and that's what we see here with james brown right the long-term damage of childhood trauma is something that hasn't been studied or discussed enough and sadly we hear about it when it rears its ugly head in situations like this where you grow up in a domestic violence household. Odds are you're going to be involved in a domestic violence household because to you, that's the correct way. That's the way you do it. That's the it's a right cycle way. That, it's a cycle that is hard to break, but uh, I got to say that I love seeing that um, America for a, in a big way changing that. Uh, especially in the way that we rear our children. Uh, for every story that we hear about, there's you know thousands of kids who are just being raised as happy kids with healthy appetites and points of view. And I think it was always that way. And I think what got us off on this is the fact that artists often, not always, but artists often have very strained life. And sometimes uh, it leads to misbehavior. Mm -hmm. And that's what happened with, with Brown. At that point in his life, it was really sad to see because, you know, this is a guy who did a lot of great things for music and for uh, equality. And you mentioned earlier the um, the night he was on stage, and there's actually a documentary. I just saw that it's on um, uh, while you were talking. I noticed The Night James Brown Saved Boston is a documentary that is on YouTube if people want to go check that out. So that's something you can do that's JB-related. Mm -hmm. Well, he was standing on the balcony at the motel. And he came out of his room and came to the edge of the balcony. And as he came out, he was shot. Our report we just got uh, is that uh, it's fatal. I beg your pardon? We just got the report that it's fatal, that the shot was fatal. 
the wounds there. I have some very sad news for all of you and people who love peace all over the world. And that is that Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis. Racism's a big part of his story as well because of the fact that he was such a confident black man doing things his own way and bucking the white system got him into a lot of trouble and it pissed a lot of people off. You know what pissed them off? It was that it was rubbing up against them. You know, I think of the scene where they're doing somebody's Christmas TV show and they're all in those goofy knit sweaters. Oh, yeah. And and it was like, yeah, I'm here. I'm in. I'm. I'm perfectly acceptable in white America now. I mean, think about this. James Brown didn't get a lot of respect from the white media until his live at the Apollo LP. I mean, they, That's how we started this episode. And yep. We hadn't talked about it. You're right. And that was the album or the music that really got him noticed. Before that, it was too rebellious. In a way, if you think about it, James Brown is kind of punk rock, too, because he did everything against the system. He uh, bucked the system continually, continually demanded to do it his way. And in the same aspect, he changed the direction of soul music and invented funk. And in the movie, there's that moment where the band kind of walks out on him and he starts a new band, mm-hmm. the original JBs. And the funny thing is, I noticed that Maceo came back a couple of years later. But that included Fred, Fred Wesley and Jimmy Nolan, Fred Thomas, uh, J-Bo Starks, and Clyde Stubblefield, the great Clyde Stubblefield, Bootsy Collins, Felt Collins, too, uh, Johnny Griggs, Sweet Charles Sherrell. These are all people who play with James and the 70s into the 80s, uh, Sinclair Pinckney and uh, Hassan Jamison, Jason Sanford, Chicken Gunnels, Chopper McCullough, Jimmy Parker, Ike Oakley. It's a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Russell Crimes, Robert Lee Coleman, Bobby Roach, John Moore, Holly Ferris, and Joe Poff and Melvin Parker. These are all people who played for a year or two here and there. Tyrone Jefferson, Tony Cook, David Westick, Keith Jenkins, Jeff Watkins, Arthur Dixon, and Aaron Purdy. There's a name you may know. It was a pressure cooker. Mm-hmm. And every now and then, people would pop out like Bootsy and go do something else and become even bigger than they were when they were a member of the JBs, one of the most awesome forces of nature ever. He had so many hits. Think about this, too. Other than Kraftwerk, he is the most sampled artist in hip-hop, probably. You know, next time we get Chris Schwartz on here, we got to talk to him about sampling and, yeah. and, and ask him about Brown. Yeah. Because I think you're right. That I hear so many riffs in hip hop records and some of the rhythm that, that's why Stubblefield, man, he, he's very much sampled. That sound that he did on a lot of those records. Oh, yeah. It's uh, part of it. So. And once you step up to the stand and tell the jury how you feel about this bullshit, MC Ren, will you please give your testimony to the jury about this fucked up incident? And I love that, especially James Brown's music and the funk, the sax is extra meaty always. 1989, the number, I'm 
There's this rawness to it, an emotional rawness to the sax in his music that is just so powerful. The way they wrote the charts, when they were hitting you with that, that two, three-way horn mm-hmm. set thing, it was crazy. It, yep. it was something that I hadn't heard before, yep. Yep. and you don't hear it very much anywhere else. Other bands were inspired by the uh, the Flames and then the JBs. They were they were a tour de force, man. Yep. James Brown was an amazing composer as well. He composed all this music and arranged mm-hmm. it too, so he knew what the hell he was doing, and he was great at it. His ear was exceptional. An American treasure, the one and only James Brown. Yeah. Well, buddy, I've had a good time talking about JB here on this episode, and it's made my birthday happier. Happy birthday. And once again, happy birthday to James Brown, who was born uh, 25 years before me, which means he was already in the funk by the time I was born, Marcus. He was was well into the funk by then. He was funking the world at that point. His influence on rock and roll is gargantuan. His music is powerful. He came along and changed the world in a time when the white world and the African American world were two completely parallel universes where you could be super well known in one and completely obscure in the other. He stood up and forced the end to the uh, separation it shows. Probably lost money at it, but he did the right thing at times when it wasn't always easy. And that's why he's such a dichotomy, because he could do so many crazy things at a time when it wasn't necessary. And then on the other hand, do all these really right things, good things, um, just because they seem necessary. Yep. Uh, it's it's part of what made him special, I suppose. Shooting yourself in the foot syndrome that many of these people have that are super creative and super gifted and super talented, they have some sort of issue or they have some trouble dealing with the rest of the world because of the way their brain works and they shoot themselves in the foot. He did that a lot as well. He had tax issues. He right. made bad decisions. But at the same time, he gave so much back to the community of Augusta. He provided Thanksgiving turkeys for so many families over the decades. He gave away so many Christmas presents over the decades to little children that didn't have any money. So he, he did didn't forget where he came from and he always tried to remember that other kids might be in the same boat. Georgia. No, 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 no. He's Just an old sweet song keeps Georgia on my mind. Ranger cassette of occurrences. In 2006, Brown had been ill and went to a dental appointment. He was supposed to get an implant uh, done. And the dentist said he didn't look right. And he said he felt bad, weak, kind of dazed. And the doctor said, you should go see your regular doctor about what's going on. 
and he hadn't been well and he wasn't one to complain this is where the message is to go see your doctor as you get older especially he was pretty sure that he was going to be fine and that he was going to do new year's eve as scheduled at the wonderful count basie theater in jersey and he was going to be playing at bb kings in new york there on Christmas Day, 2006, congestive heart failure. Man with so much heart that could pump so much during those shows live. There's complications of pneumonia. Just a sad story. I would love to see James Brown live today doing his funky thing and sharing his funky vibe with the world. The world could use James Brown in a time like this. Yeah, 73 plus 15. He'd be 88 right now. I don't think he's going to get up if he gets down. (laughs) He's not going to get it on up. No. But he could do some of the moves on stage that nobody else could do. People would imitate him, and he inspired a lot of people with that, including people like Prince and Michael Jackson, mm-hmm. and uh, people who would see him, and other artists who would see him. I think in some ways he inspired Steven Tyler too, with the way Tyler would whirl around on stage early, in the, especially early in the, in the days of the band. Oh yeah, you know, so he had a, a massive influence on generations of Americans' ears and our hearts our soul this is the imbalanced history of rock and roll it's time for us to go bro but hopefully you've learned something as we learn along the way about james brown the dichotomy that he is Uh, if you've got anything you want to add to this or any episode you can always drop us a line at imbalancehistory at gmail.com that's our email address and don't forget our website imbalancehistory.com where you can find all the episodes anytime and a lot of other content that we talk about throughout our episodes. We'll post stuff up there all the time. Well, looks like it's time to go. Thanks to the great James Brown for giving us the funk, for making it real, keeping it going. Signing off from the Dark Duck Studios, I'm Ray Coop. I'm Marcus Goldman. And this is the Imbalance History of Funk and Roll. Where's that confounded bridge? It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com 
code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 